Now let me ask you this, for all of us in the room, what was your most favorite gift last year? What about two years ago? What about five years ago? Chances are good that the gifts we received this morning, or maybe yesterday, as special as they were, or are, even the one that you treasured the most this morning will fade from our memories. And if we're not careful, the same will be true of the greatest gift that we've ever received. That corporate gift that we've all received. The gift of a Savior who was born for us to save us from our sin. Our text tonight, which is in Matthew chapter 2 that Aaron read earlier, is not a typical Christmas text. If you haven't been with us, um, we have been focusing on the incarnation of the Lord Jesus since the 1st of November. And so we arrive at this particular text being the ninth or eighth of our nine lessons. It's typically an epiphany text. For those of you that may not um, or may be unfamiliar with Epiphany or Three Kings Day, it is the third of the three oldest festival days behind Christmas and Easter that's celebrated by the Catholic Episcopal and Lutheran churches or for those who enjoy following uh, the church calendar. There are those outside of those traditions that enjoy doing that. It's observed on January 6th. After the 12 days of Christmas or at the conclusion of those 12 days, it's primary, uh, it primarily commemorates the coming of the Magi, or the wise men, to visit the child who was born King of the Jews. And it's prepared with, by fasting, which is observed during Advent, which is an anticipation of the coming, the first coming of the Savior, as well as the uh, remembrance of the first coming. Anticipation of the second coming, Advent, which concludes uh, today. Now, I know that's more than you probably wanted to know, but I wanted to give you an idea of why this text is typically preached between January second and eighth, uh, not on Christmas Day. But that being said, with, while the Magi seem to be the main characters of this pericope, it remains a text that puts the Christ child on full display. The Magi are simply supporting characters who have been drawn into or made a part of Christ's story. And while they miss the birth, their coming months later was significant in a number of ways that I think we'll see tonight. I want us to see uh, four things in particular. I want us to notice from this text, first the marvelous visitors the miraculous sign, the magnificent gifts, and the momentous decision. You'll find that outline in the back of your bulletin. If you would like to follow along and children, you'll find the words in the typical place in the bulletin for you. Let's pray before we begin, all right? Father, I ask that in these moments, you would open our eyes and ears to the truth of your word. I ask that you would speak to our hearts. 
That you would use the room that you create by driving the doubt of dark away to plant and cultivate a new affection for Jesus. Give us a greater joy that is both deep and lasting. And I pray your spirit would work through the proclamation of this, your word, for the sake of Christ and his church. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Well, let's begin with the marvelous visitors. We know them uh, by tradition as Casper and Balthazar and Melchior. Even though we have no biblical or historical truth to validate it. Uh, the truth is we're not even sure how many or how few there were. We're also not sure where they're from other than the East. Uh, some people believe they're from Babylon, others Persia, or the majority opinion is Babylon or Persia. Uh, we're, we're also not completely sure what wise or magi even means. Again, specifically, it depends on really where they're from. Uh, some say the designation is a result of their priestly and political positions within the country from which they were, had come. Uh, others believe it was due to uh, the number of disciplines that they were well versed in from math and science and history and religion, but specifically uh, astronomy and ast astrology. And still others believe that or believe that they were high-ranking or similar to the high-ranking officials of, of Babylon as in Daniel's day. Again, we, we don't know for certain. And quite honestly, I don't know if it's important to even have a position. Rather than focus on what we don't know, we ought to focus on what we do know. And what we do know is that they weren't Jews. They were Gentiles. And that is what mattered. Because from the very beginning, the, the fact that the people that Christ had come to save were not only Jews, but also people from every tribe, nation, and tongue has been put on full display. From the very beginning, it was evident that His people would not be made up of ethnicity or nationality, but they would be made up of those uh, spiritually. From the very beginning, we see the contrasting responses of Jews who, in John's words, did not receive Him, and Gentiles who did. That is what happened. Well, when these marvelous visitors show up in Jerusalem, they begin asking where the King of the Jews has been born, and everybody in Jerusalem, all the Jews would have known that this was a reference to the Messiah. Now, again, we don't know where they received or what was the source of their information. It could have been myth. It could have been uh, legend. Or there could have been, they, they could have been exposed on a limited basis to scripture or history or prophecies or the stories of Israel. Or it could have been a mixture of all of the above. But regardless, they were in Jerusalem because that would have been the obvious place for a king to be born. What we do know, however, is that they had seen a miraculous sign. And without going into too much detail, let me just say that there have been numerous alternative opinions as to what that was. Matthew says it was a star. Others believe it was Jupiter. Others believe it was a combination of Jupiter and Saturn. 
or a conjunction of the two. Some believe it was a, a meteor or a comet. I personally think it was a star, but not just any star. Because based on the text, what we do know is that the star appeared, it remained for a while, it then disappeared, it then reappeared, and then began to move. And came to a stop, and rested over the place where the child was. And I don't know about you, but that sounds very familiar to the pillar of fire that led the Israelites by night in the wilderness. It also sounds like the same Shekinah glory of God that was present over the tabernacle in the wilderness. And it was now present over Bethlehem centuries later. Where the one who tabernacled by taking on flesh was now present. But these marvelous visitors were not only clear regarding how they got there. They were also clear as to why they had come. They were there to worship the king that they were looking for. And we get an idea of how important this was to them in verse 10. Because when the star reappears, the text says that they, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. One commentator put it this way. He said, it is difficult to find an English idiom sufficiently extravagant to capture Matthew's description of their rejoicing with exceeding great joy when the star reappeared. In other words, this is an understatement. And what they were expressing because the star had come. The star had disappeared. So you can imagine the opposite was true. But when it reappeared, they were, they were joyous and excited. So it makes sense that when they arrive and see the child, they immediately fall prostrate before him and worship him. They weren't simply kneeling before a human king. They were prostrate before the king of kings and lord of lords. The Messiah, the long-awaited, much-anticipated Messiah, God in human flesh, the Savior who is Christ the Lord, who would save His people from their sins. And as a part of their worship, they brought magnificent gifts. All very expensive. They brought gold, which of course was for royalty. They brought frankincense, which was a pure incense that almost exclusively was used for worship and burnt offerings to God. And myrrh, which was used in a couple ways to dull pain, as we, as we see in the case when Christ was on the cross, as well as a perfume used to anoint the dead, as we see as Christ was in the tomb. So we have a gift for a king, a gift for deity, and a gift for humanity. Another way to put it would be, we have gifts that pointed to the one whom we should uh, submit and obey. We have gifts for the one with whom and through whom a relationship with God is possible. And we have gifts for the one through whose death forgiveness was to be received. And that brings us to the momentous decision. Verse 12 says, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Herod was constantly worried to the point of paranoid about losing his position. He was a faux, F-A-U-X, king. 
who was obviously threatened by this announcement of the birth of the rightful heir of the Davidic throne. R.C. Sproul said the word troubled is not adequate. It's not an adequate translation for what Herod was feeling. He says that Herod, or said that Herod was more than troubled, he was terrified. Which better explains Herod's reaction to the momentous decision that the Magi made by not returning to him to let him know where the Christ child was. Because later on we read that he of course has every child, male child under the age of two who lived in Bethlehem and the surrounding area killed. Which is traditionally known as the slaughter or massacre of innocents. And of course the wise men had no way of knowing how Herod would react. At least toward them, toward those children. They had responded to God's glory by following the star and worshiping him. And now they were responding to his glory by obeying him. They had moved from a place of responding to God's revealed glory through a star to responding to his revealed word in the dream. And despite the potential cost to themselves, they chose to go another way. They did what God had instructed them to do. And we don't have any record of any kind of argument. We don't have any record of that disobedience was to be an option. There was no discussion of alternatives. They simply heard and went as they had been instructed. They obeyed. Now as always, in the, throughout our study in of the Incarnation, there are more takeaways than we can list tonight. There, there are theological and practical takeaways and we just spend all night thinking through them. I simply want to ask the question, how do we respond? And the text actually gives us three responses. They're just lifted up right, right in the midst of them. How do we respond? To this one born king of the Jews. To how do we respond to the Messiah? How do we respond to the Savior born for us? How do we respond? Well, first we can respond with rebellion and hostility out of fear. Like Herod, we can refuse to get off the thrones of our own hearts. Where we sit as faux kings. Acting as if we're masters of our own destiny. We can refuse to obey Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We can continue to believe the lie that our problems are outside of ourselves and that the solutions are inside of ourselves. And we can continue to cling to our own thoughts and our own ideas. Our own wants, our own desires. And we can run roughshod over anyone who gets in our way. Who stand in the way of our own autonomy that we so strongly desire. We can go even so far as some and redefine terms and create our own realities 
Reconstructories or Reconstructory Land. We can exchange what's natural for what's unnatural and even mutilate the weak and confused and murder the most innocent and vulnerable among us so that we can maintain our own sense of sovereignty and do what we want with whom we want, where we want, any time in that. But please understand, there's a price to pay. Or there will be a price to pay. Because there will come a day when the right, the rightful and true king will return, not as savior, but as judge. And he will come to judge both the living and the dead. And when he does, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And for those who remain stiff-necked and digging their heels until that day will be found wanting. They will be exposed as the faux kings that they, they are. And their make-believe kingdom is going to come crashing down around them. Secondly, we can respond with indifference. Like the chief priests and scribes that Herod called together and assembled those who knew the scriptures and pointed the wise men to where the king was by using the prophecy from Micah. But they themselves failed to go to Jerusalem or failed to go to Bethlehem to see this one because of their unbelief. We can possess enormous amounts of knowledge and do possess enormous amounts of knowledge in our heads, but there are those that have enormous amounts of knowledge in their heads, but then have little to no grace in their hearts. Listen to these words of J.C. Ryle. He says, it is not always those who have the most religious privileges who give Christ the most honor. How often the very persons who live nearest the means of grace are those who neglect him most. Familiarity with sacred things has an awful tendency to make men despise them. There are many who from residence and convenience ought to be first and foremost in the worship of God and yet are always last. We can rest in the fact that we read our Bibles daily. We can rest in the fact that we attend Sunday school. We memorize the catechism. We confess the Apostles' Creed and subscribe intellectually to our confession. And all the while fail to, to believe in and cling to and have affection for the persons to whom all those things point. Fail to have affection for, one, for the one to whom all those things are, are the, the one that all of those things reveal. Again, in the words of J.C. Ryle, let us beware of resting satisfied with head knowledge. It's an excellent thing when rightly used, but a man may have much of it and yet perish everlastingly. What is the state of our hearts? That is the great question. And then finally, we can respond to him in faith with joy, which leads to worship and obedience. Like the wise men who believed the baby was worthy of a lengthy journey, was worthy of worship, and was worthy of great treasure. We can set our hearts on him 
we can pursue Him. And we can not rest until we see Him as He is in glory. We too, again, in the words of J.C. Rowell, not be ashamed to believe in Jesus and confess Him, though all around us remain careless and unbelieving. We too can rejoice with exceeding great joy. We can rejoice with exceeding great joy that He has saved us. And we can respond with reverence and, and awe, worship, and obedience is only. He is worthy to receive. And the reason? Listen to these words from Sinclair first. The experience of the wise men finding Christ in Bethlehem is unique, as is the story of Saul of Tarsus encountering him on the road to Damascus. These stories may seem much more supernatural than ours, but the truth is that while they may be more dramatic, Ours is no less supernatural. For the same Lord sovereignly divined the events that also led to us, led us, excuse me, to faith. It was He who placed us in a Christian family, or brought us into contact with a Christian, or stirred up in us an unaccountable desire to read the Bible. He created in us a sense that there was something wrong or missing, and so by various means He brought us to the Bible's message and to faith in Christ. The important thing is not how spectacular God's work is, but how effective it has been. All that matters is that we have come to Christ and have found in Him what we were looking for, even if we did not at first know what that really was. And that, he says, is a reason to be profoundly thankful. Brothers and sisters, we were guilty, you've heard from this pulpit many times, from both me and Aaron, we, we were guilty of cosmic treason. That's not our words, that's the words of R.C. Sproul. Cosmic treason against the Holy God. And rather than leave us in our sin and misery, rather than leave us in a state of perishing, he sent his son to do what we could not do for us. This baby whose birth we celebrate today grew into a man. He lived, he died, he was murdered, he was buried, but he rose again from the dead. And his life, death, and resurrection fully and sufficiently satisfied the Father's demands for you and me. By his spirit while we were dead. In our trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ. And our only right response of the grace that's been lavished upon us is a life of gratitude made evident through our worship and our obedience. In Paul's words, we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our Spiritual worship. And as one author put it, that means our worship is our surrendering of ourselves to God Himself every day of our lives. And especially as we gather with God's people to praise His name. We must not serve the Lord as mere afterthought. We must not seek Him half-heartedly. Instead, we are to give Him the very best of ourselves, not to atone for our sin or to merit our forgiveness.
forgiveness, but to thank Him for saving us, for giving us a purpose, and for calling us into His service. May that be true for us today. But not just today. Every day. Let's pray here. Father, by your spirit and grace, would you allow us and enable us to receive the word with faith and love, lay it up in our hearts, and practice it in our lives. For your glory and for our good and for the sake of Christ and his church, I pray these things. Amen.